Hey, Michael Bollington. And um, you're in the NIT field, correct? Uh, one of the, the many things that I do, yeah, it's my primary job at the moment. Good. And I was going to talk to you about uh, what you think um, IT and what the world technology-wise is going to be in a COVID, post-COVID world or whatever. And I also uh, wanted to talk about Facebook, if you want. <laughs> you definitely touch on that. Okay. It's kind of like a two-headed beast, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, why don't, uh, why don't you get rolling? Um, so, my, uh, my background is um, law enforcement and EMS. Uh, up until about 2016, I was forced to retire for medical purposes, and at the time, I was pursuing a degree in IT, um, in the IT field. So I finished that up, and I jumped into a job doing IT-type work. Uh, I work for a managed systems uh, company, so we do a little bit of everything. Um, I predominantly deal with the access controls and physical security aspect of, of our company, uh, not so much with the IT end of it. But I can definitely say that seeing how things have been unfolding and how a lot of companies are reacting, the need for upscaling infrastructures and for remote-type setups, it's, I think it's only going to grow more than it has exponentially over the last few months. And you're... You're in New Jersey, correct? I am. So what was COVID-19 like in New Jersey, at least from your perspective? Um, from my perspective, and again, I, I think I have a slightly unique perspective because I still am active in EMS uh, for the volunteer squad that I've been a part of. Um, it, it, it's hard to say. I, I think our governor did a good job in – adhering and administering guidelines to flatten the curve as you know, everybody had hoped. Um, I think the evidence showed that up until quite recently where, you know, people can't follow simple instructions um, and still for some reason think that this virus is a joke. Uh, I think once people realize that it's, it's not a joke and, and maybe unfortunately that's going to have to be them being personally affected by it, um, I think then we'll, we'll really start seeing the numbers drop categorically across the board, across the nation. Well, I'm a little more concerned with, uh, I kind of take the opposite tack, actually. I, I kind of think that there's a lot of people that I've run into in my life that just don't. I feel like they, I don't want to say it wrong, they they don't, um, it's like they almost don't think bad things can happen to them. Yeah. Um, but like that's a, not really, yeah, exactly. It's a sense, it's a, it's just this arrogant sense of, of, uh, what was the word I was just thinking of? Um, it's arrogance and it's this false sense of security that, you know, they're invincible. That's what I was trying to think of. Exactly. And it's like, you know, I, I have friends that have are on dialysis and friends on that have 
dealt with organ problems. And so I've seen it. Like, I've seen what that's like. And it's like, you know, you're, you know, you're basically lucky if you die of COVID in two weeks. Yeah, the, <laughs> the suffering that I understand that goes along with the really catastrophically horrific cases, it, it, it's not pleasant at all. No, no. Um, so I guess, like, most people backdate their understanding of COVID to about when the NBA closed up. But I would imagine you're a little different. Yeah, I kind of, I've been keeping an eye on it since well, the NBA closed up mid-March. I've been, I would backdate mine to at least middle of February. Um based off of things that we were hearing and cases of being reported, the initial cases, um, we started, when I say we have heard of the, my EMS family, uh, we started taking precautions and, and trying to figure out how we can protect ourselves while still being able to provide the services that we provide. And you're talking about February in, in, uh, in New Jersey, or are you talking about was it still just in Italy and China then, or was it in New Jersey well, too? I believe it was. I believe it was New Jersey, and I, I apologize if I'm incorrect in that. Um, just because the last six months have just been a complete blur. Um, I believe it was February where you know I, we started hearing grumblings. Our proximity to New York, where it essentially became the first epicenter in the country, if I recall correctly. Um, you know. New York City is the, pretty much the most densely populated place in the country, and New Jersey is one of the most densely populated states in the country. Um, when we literally <laughs> we share, you know, riverbed, um, that's why I think New Jersey started getting a little up, uh, gearing up for, for precautions and such. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. And, like, do you have, like, a personal story you want to share about, like, because, I mean, with me, it was like I realized something was up. I was laying in my bed, and I was looking at my phone, and I saw, like, a video from, like, Italy. And I saw these people laying on the floor in the hospital, and I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy. The the only stories that I can really relate, I mean, you kind of use the NBA as there is, as a check mark for when things really went sideways. I used the NHL. I was actually supposed to go to a Devils game the night that the NHL decided to suspend operations. Um, as far yeah. as interacting with the virus personally, um, my wife and I have been working throughout this entire thing. We both were, I guess, fortunately unfortunate. Um, to be able to work. Um, we both well, got at the beginning of June. Um, my wife got tested at the beginning of June. Her first test came back negative, but we were both mildly symptomatic. Our primary care physician was pretty sure that we had uh, COVID, but we both were tested twice. We both were te- uh, came back negative. So now it's just a matter of getting the antibody test to see what's going on, but my doctor said that she had a patient that had 
was tested three times and all three times it came back negative, but she was exhibiting a number, number of the, um, classic signs of terror, uh, symptoms. Yeah, there seem to be a lot of symptoms. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's the, the, the insane thing is because it's a virus, because it's a new virus, it's, it's still evolving and our understanding of it is still evolving. So until we, right. until the doctors and scientists and the people that are really studying it have a better understanding of its process and, and how it's really going to affect us, it's, it, I don't think it's going to get better before the end of the year. That is the most optimistic thing I've ever heard. I mean, I, I was talking to a fellow today, and he was talking about how he had read it was going to be four years. And I'm well, like, I think it's, gee whiz. I think it depends on what we're talking about, what what we're calling back to normal. Um, you know, the big phrase now is, you know, the new norm, wearing face masks and, you know, keeping distance and, you know, no big gathering, things like that. Um, I think once we have a much richer understanding of the how the virus attacks the body, uh, the systems and the things like that that it attacks and how it affects them um, until we have ideally a vaccine and at least a better course of treatment. It's like a universal course of treatment. Um, we're we're going to have these distances. We're going to have the limits on, you know, uh, capacities for businesses. It, it's this will be the new norm until we have those things. Right. I agree with you. Um, and I hope you're right as far as people realizing, you know, once school really gets rolling, that, hey, this is a, a serious problem. But I don't know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I want to be optimistic, but. Well, the thing is, the problem I have with school is, and I'm a substitute teacher. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I got my substitute cert so I could coach wrestling. Um, like I said, I'm a little all, all over the place. Um, my problem with school personally is I don't feel that we should be sending the kids back to school in a full capacity um, just yet for a number of reasons. My experience with my two sons, uh, was not, it was not very good for them once they shifted to the full online virtual school. Um, both my boys have ADHD. They have a real hard time focusing. And with my wife and I both still working full time, coming home, you know, we check with them, but to really understand what they need to be ha- having done for school and things like that, you know, they could show us, hey, we did the work and we'd look and see. It looks like the work was done. But then we were getting emails on almost a regular basis from the teachers saying, hey, you know, just so you know, they're they're kind of falling back and you know, this one's missing this work and this one's missing this work. So I think moving forward this year for my kids, only because I don't think they're going to learn anything in a complete virtual setting, I think the hybrid of, you know, handful of kids a day spread throughout the school, you can maintain the social distancing. Um, fortunately, my kids are old enough that, the mask wearing won't be an issue, um, but I, I understand the, the concern of the teachers and the faculty, 
But, you know, for some kids doing the complete virtual thing and not having a teacher to really guide them on, on certain aspects and, and key points is, I think it's going to be really detrimental to them. Right. And I mean, I, I don't know. I go back and forth myself. I mean, I used to think we could all, you know, you could somehow get it to where you could, we could all sit at home and, and just let this thing play out kind of. But the more I think about it, the more I think that's not really possible. Well, you know, I think it is possible. I mean, for me, I've essentially got my entire bachelor's degree online uh, without study, stepping into a brick and mortar school at all, uh, with the exception of for you know financial things and uh, one test or something like that. I think if the framework is set up properly, to where it's more not only more engaging, but with colleges, they typically do lectures live. I think if we had that implementation, and I understand that this was, you know, kind of really crammed down the teacher's throats, but given time to plan for it a little better, knowing what worked and what, you know, what the problem spots were from this end of the school year, moving forward, I think if you can implement a better program and a better system, the kids that do need that hands-on, need that more structured support, they'll they might not get the as structured support, but they're going to get something better than what they were given. And again, I, I totally understand, and I don't fault the teachers. I think the teachers did a phenomenal job with what they were given um, at the, you know, essentially in March, and finishing up the last few months of school with that. But with that being said, you know, we as humans should be able to you know, learn from experiences and adapt and move forward. So I'd like to think that moving forward, if they go with a hybrid system, or if they decide to go with a full virtual system that they're going to implement systems where it's a little more accountability for the students. Um, I think that would be a big thing. And seeing how the structure was right now, it's almost like they just took what they were doing, you know, the virtual classrooms that had already been established. Here, do this work, do this assignment, and just submit it. And, you know, there wasn't as much uh, classroom. And I know some of the teachers did Google Hangouts, and you know, Zoom meetings, things like that, but it wasn't, you know, um, mandated, so to speak. So, yeah. They do. <laughs> I'm sorry, say it again? I said, we'll see what they do. Right, right. Um, my main, I guess my main thing I think now is, I don't know, I just kind of think like, trying to put it into words here like it's obvious to me that we're going through a transition yes but I don't know how you know like but I don't know how long that transitional period is going to be or of course even what's going to be on the other side of it um like the other side of that transition or whatever I think anybody that says they can give you a definitive time frame of how long that transition is going to take, um, they're lying. <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't think anybody, even, you know, and, and I rely heavily on what scientists and I rely on experts, um, which, you know, again, given the current circumstances that we live in, the current 
state of affairs prior to the whole COVID thing, um, it, it's hard to find what is legitimate information and what is not. You know, it's, it's hard to sit through the, the mud and muck of quote-unquote truth when you have so much of the primary media sources that have a clear bias in how they report things. And, you know, anybody that knows anything about statistics is you can get the statistics to show whatever you want if you craft it, craft it the right way. Um, what I find, what I find so, I guess, personally, so frustrating is that, I mean, even, first of all, with the British media, you know, the fact that I'm even using British media is frustrating. Right. I but, uh, but also the fact that, like, you know, the fact that when you look at the coronavirus numbers, it's like it, it fluctuates. Well, um, fluctuates not the word I want. It's like there's one number. It's like they report different numbers is essentially what I'm saying. Right. And it's also like, like I found out the other day that my county, where exactly where I live, is a coronavirus hotspot. Right. And maybe I'm just a guy doing the Spanish flu podcast, but I mean, you know, there's all kinds of ways to hide. I mean, I'm not being conspiratorial. I'm just telling you the truth. There's all sorts of ways to massage numbers. Absolutely. Like you can, like this person can die of this instead of that. Like, you know, like with the Spanish flu, for example, um, the way to die of the Spanish flu was to die next to somebody who thought you could have died of the Spanish flu. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And again, that's, that's kind of where I was touching on with the fact that it's hard to really find out what the truth is. You know, there's reports and whether or not it's substantiated or not is hard to figure out. But you have reports saying, well, well, they're just blowing up the numbers. They're saying that anybody that dies that has COVID is a COVID death. Well, it's not necessarily true. You could have COVID, but that not be the primary factor. You might have had mild symptoms, but then you had a heart attack or as one extreme right-handed side of the thing I heard was, um, you know, they're reporting that if somebody had mild symptoms of COVID, but they died in something like an accident, they were counting that as a COVID death, which that's not a COVID death. That's a traumatic accident. So again, yeah, besides playing with the numbers, I mean, you could say 60% of the people are, have the virus, but you can also say 60, 40% of the people don't have the virus. So it's all how it's presented. Right. And I mean, I, I've heard of that, but I've also heard, like I had a, I had a fellow on the podcast, uh, and when we were having our little pre-conversation, he talked about how he read that you could have, so I can, I can have COVID, right? Or say, well, I don't have COVID, but let's say like somebody has COVID. And the hospital tests them once, and that counts as one COVID debt or one COVID case. And then the hospital tests that same person again, and that counts as another COVID case. Right? Two separate right. COVID cases for Which, the same. That would definitely inflate the numbers. And to me, that sounds like uh, insurance fraud, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's... 
Right. The big argument is they're inflating numbers to increase their funding for their hospitals. Um, my my cousin works in a hospital. He understands, you know, some of the politics that are involved. Um, but even he said it, we had a little bit of discussion about how the virus in and of itself is impacting. And if anything, we would kind of think that they, the hospitals wouldn't bump up the numbers because the amount of resources that go into treating these really severe cases, you know, the people that are in ICU, that are on ventilators, the the medical remedy, uh, course that needs to be done, the, the staffing that needs to be done, all the precautions, that number is just exponential. And they're in a time where people were, for a while, not going to the hospital for things that they normally would have. And I can tell you that from my experiences in, in EMS is, for a while, our call volume dropped down significantly. We weren't getting a lot of the, you know, how my toe hurts or I got a headache. It was, you know, really the, the severe calls and the true number one emergency. But with that being said, I, I didn't buy into much that hospitals were inflating numbers. But then hearing something like that, where they're testing somebody twice and counting each test as a new case, I mean, I'd like to think. That's not true, but I also understand our medical system is completely screwed up in this country, so I kind of wouldn't put it past them. Well, and, you know, it, to me, my when, I, when he told me that, he said that he heard that, first of all. But the thing I pointed out was, you know, I, I went in a little bit into the weeds of how to like, first of all, you, you would need to hire somebody that knows about databases, first of all. And you're not going to hire somebody to make a COVID database, right? Right. Like at the hospital level. So my thought was they're not just doing that for COVID. They're doing that for Everything. other things they, uh, other things they can do that for, essentially. Right. And that's, that's was kind of what, what I was thinking. But, you know, but then again, you know, like you were saying earlier, who knows how much of that is real and and how much of that uh, basically was just some news item agenda. I don't know. And See, that, something like that's that, frustrating. Um, something reporting it as I heard that this is what they were doing, it's conspiratorial downplaying the virus sounds like something that would come from the right side. Just like I would, when I hear things that kind of sound a little, maybe, you know, raise your eyebrow, a little skeptical in hearing that are inflating numbers, it just doesn't sound right. I would attribute that to the left side of the aisle. And as being somebody who sits in the middle and tries to really sift through the nonsense and sift through everything that's being said just to find the truth or find the most plausible answer to things. Yeah. Um, Especially for something like this, where you know it's a virus, it doesn't matter. Well, the fact that <laughs> politically, the fact that right? But the fact is, it's been politicized um, a great deal, which is, in my opinion, yeah, absurd and entirely uncultural. Well, to me, right, and to me, I think the, I think the, I guess the fundamental problem I have with that, right, is that the leadership, love it or hate it in this country, um, I think made the wrong call in equating this with 
something that was no more deadly than the flu, and then he changed it to the flu, and now it's it's totally not. Because the flu in most people's minds, and indeed in my mind as recently as January, right. was just something you got for a little minute, and then like a you know, you got it for a little while. You ate a bunch of chicken soup and drank some drank some ginger ale, and yeah, then you got over it. Right. <laughs> you know? But that's I've seen the the stuff I've seen is essentially there's so much new uh neurological impairment essentially they, they kind of think like it yeah. causes strokes and you the know two that i've heard are pulmonary related issues because of the catastrophic damage it, it's doing to the lungs and lung tissue and neurologic um right which is scary and that's not the flu <laughs> the flu doesn't damage you that bad the flu comes and goes this is not the flu. Well, well, exactly. And also, to me, when you when you look back at the at the Spanish flu, to me, the Spanish flu was that way. When you really dig into it, Spanish flu would cause strokes, and so that's what I deal with on my podcast is kind of the new research into the Spanish flu. Um, so there was a, I think a cholera outbreak, either cholera or the bubonic plague. I don't remember. But there was a, like an outbreak of a disease in LA in the last decade. Right. And after that, the research into the Spanish flu really changed because people started looking at this, at these diseases and they were like, wait a minute. Now think back on the Spanish flu, right? You know, like, if cholera looks like cholera the world over, then I'm, maybe the Spanish flu wasn't the flu. Right. Because the flu but, doesn't cause, you know. But we also have the, the benefit of, of hindsight and looking at this through hindsight, which anything through the hindsight of 2020, you can see the errors of ways you can, you can see the, where the problems were and you can hopefully take that information and then figure out how to make better educated guesses. Um, and, and that seems to be a, a recurring theme is people are looking at a lot of things throughout history uh, through a very myopic viewpoint and only looking at the negatives and ignoring the overwhelming positive that came from these parts of history. Um, you know, our country as in, in general is, is ripe with examples of poor Acts of humanity, to, to put it lightly. Um, but we need to kind of sit back and say, hey, that was what they thought was right with the information they had at the time for some things. Not, you know, we're talking about science then right now. Um, you know, that was, that's what they were able to conclude the best as they could with the information and data that they had available to them. Obviously, since we've had the Spanish flu, we've had, you know, phenomenal eons types of development in understanding viruses and, and medical practices and, and pathology and things of, of that nature. So we can look at it nowadays and say, well, that was a mistake, so let's not repeat that again. And to me, history is all about looking at the mistakes, not villainizing them for it, but saying 
that was a mistake. That's why it was a mistake. Let's not do that again. Unfortunately, that's just not how people seem to be wanting the functionalities. And you're probably, you're exactly right. I mean, and, you know, I think what kind of shocked everybody was, I mean, okay, I, you probably might not remember. You might. Um, so Ebola hit, uh, hit America, uh, late in Obama. And according to the research I've seen, a grand total of two people died from the Ebola outbreak that hit America during late Obama. I thought it was three, but I know it was an, I know it was a small number. Well, it was either right, exactly. It was less than everybody says it's less than ten. Right. Which, as tragic as that is, less than ten for something like Ebola is phenomenal. Phenomenal. And I think a lot of people, I mean, really a lot of people, they haven't really thought about what a pandemic would be like in America in a modern context. Well, you know, like. But you have to also look at it, the fact that the president at the time had things implemented. He had plans enabled. He put a plan into action as soon as it was hey, we got this thing that's kind of brewing, you know, let's kind of start with step A. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we have somebody who is well-documented. He pretty much disabled our response plan, our ability to properly respond and adequately respond to it. And on top of that, kept on downplaying it for a good month and a half, two months. I mean, he still kind kind of downplays it. Uh, on some days more than others. But I think if we had a response to this, like we had with the potential for the, o- the Ebola outbreak, I'm not going to say that it wouldn't be bad. I just really find it hard to believe that it would be as bad as it is. And Right. And I kind of think, well, I kind of think that part of the problem, part of the problem also, I think it is the newness. Like, you know, Ebola, Ebola is kind of new, but this is brand new. Absolutely. Like, this is real new. Well, it would be extremely naive to not acknowledge the fact that this is a new thing. But also looking at the response of the current administration, the level of willingful ignorance to acknowledge things and and treat it it's as shocking. new things is what makes it's, it that much more frustrating. It's shocking. It really is just sort of a a shock. Yes. Yeah. Honestly. Um so do you want to talk about your podcast or or <laughs> what? Uh, sure. Um, my podcast, I'm still in the process of my early stages recording some shows um, to, to kind of have that buffer to blow up, start rolling them out, and then I can pick up as we go from there. But it's called Adding Context. It's a podcast that I'm hoping conveys uh, some compelling <clears throat> compelling conversations that spend around enhancing and advancing the human experience. So it's kind of a little bit of everybody, um, 
got people that are a little more well-known than others. I have people that I that are not so well-known. I have guys, you know, a couple guys from my neighborhood that are just have lived interesting lives, and that's kind of what I'm looking to do is just have conversations with people that, you know, I get to learn a little about them. They might get to learn a little about me, but it's it's kind of just sharing that interpersonal experience that I think is sorely lacking. It's also um, a long-form interview style because I think in this day and age where context is so far removed with, from sound bites, um, to give somebody a chance to really fully vet their thought and provide the context that it should be, uh, I, I think that's really important, especially, like I said, in this day and age of sound bites and miscontextualization of statements. So one of the people I actually am talking to uh, next week is a journalist, and one of the key topics we're going to talk about is, uh, at least I would like to talk about, is, is the lack of journalistic integrity. So we'll see how that goes. That sounds fascinating. Um, so I guess if you want, I mean, I'm, I'm sure my listeners are tired of me gibbering a little <laughs> overview on the flu, but if you want. If you want, like I can, we can set up something where I can do a plug, probably later, um, or we can, do, you know, I tell you what, let's not, let's give my listeners a treat. Let's do that later and just have it be on your podcast. Uh, yeah, we'll just do, we'll just do a, a whole separate thing and and then we'll throw yeah. it out as, as and do the cross promotion that way. Okay, cool. Hopefully um, not as uh, COVID heavy. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on Facebook real quick, because that was actually what we want. I wanted to talk to you about uh, originally. Yeah, Facebook um, and Facebook is a uh, kind of a two-headed beast. Um, if it was, if it was currently what it was intended to be, or at least what I understood it was supposed to be back when it was first rolled out, and what. 2003, 2004, and it stayed that way of people being able to just, you know, share ideas and communicate with old friends, it would be great. But that is not what it is nowadays. Um, I think, you know, I come from a bit of a martial arts background. I have a friend who runs martial arts school. I've been following the UFC. I'm, I'm big with martial arts. I've practiced a little bit in my time. Um, you know, one of the mentalities and believe Tyson said it, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think growing up, when you had a problem with somebody, you would, it would, word would get around that you said something about them and they would eventually come face to face with you. And I think with Facebook and, and social media in general, in this online world that we've now live in, um, it, it's sorely lacking. And, and I think you can really sell that of how vicious some people attack others that and they say things and do things that they would never do if they were face to face with somebody. Um and I think that's one of the problems that Facebook has really exacerbated was this sense of you know ominous hostility or not ominous uh Anonymous hostility. You can, you can be anonymous online. You can create a fake persona. You can post steal pictures from uh, around the internet with this physique that just is not you and 
appeal to be this big brooding person when really you're nothing more than a twig who's angry at the world. Have you run into the people yet that, you know, that for lack of a better way to say it, it's like they, they haven't really, they don't know how to communicate with people except on social media, basically. Like they don't know how to have an adult conversation anymore. Cause I've certainly started <laughs> to run into those people. Well, that's, I think the lack of social discourse was, was present before this. I think the ability to have intelligent civil debate and civil discourse has deteriorated over the last few decades. But I think once the online ability to create a persona, like I said, and and hide behind a keyboard, the social interaction and the ability to engage and communicate effectively without calling names, without lacing profanities, without insulting people. Um, I think that was significantly exacerbated. Um, and the, t- the deterioration is just, it's rampant. Um, and it's frustrating because for me, I'm, like I said, I sit in the middle politically. Um, and it's frustrating for people who, try to look for the objective truth and on both sides are being, you know, beaten with wrecking balls of misinformation, disinformation, false information that when you challenge the statement with the fact is, you know, it's fact, you're immediately met with profanities and insults and you don't know what you're talking about. You're a libertard or you're, you're a snowflake or it's right. It's regressed to, to schoolyard bullying and schoyard arguing. You know, we, and the we, one thing that the one thing I really see is I really see, especially with the older people, like uh, they really don't know how to deal with tropic. I guess like I guess nation state actors with troll troll bots. Basically, they don't know how to deal with that. Yeah, and. Uh, Again, it's it's problematic, and I think part of the political problem that we have is this identity politics that seems to be the current way to identify politically. It's, it's not – I don't identify with this party because their values are more in line with me. It's kind of demagoguing, and they're really internalizing the party's ideals as opposed to the party – being the ideals of the people, which is what it's what's supposed to be for what it was for years. Um, well, what, what I think what we're dealing with is uh, Citizens United. I mean, this is the world of, <laughs> you know what I'm was, saying? I think that might be might single-handedly be one of the most c- catastrophic, horrible decisions by the SCOTUS ever, hands down. It, it, exactly. And the problem is... And I, 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 sorry. No, go ahead. The problem is what? Once you enact a law, it's easier to enact it than it is to, to take it apart. And that's kind of proven with, you know, um, with the ACA and the Obamacare. It might not have been a perfect thing, but you can see how hard the Republicans are. They, they can't even do anything to take it down. My thought process would be, yeah, it's not the perfect legislation. So instead of ripping it all out, 
and installing something new because that's the problem. One of the other problems politically is everybody wants to bitch about the, what the problem is, but nobody wants to kick out a solution. My solution right. to the EPA is find the bad spot and fix it. You know, it's it's like building a house. You put in windows, you put on walls, you put on siding, you put on a roof, you build the inside. But throughout its life, you're going to need to replace the windows, replace the doors, you know, repaint the walls, things like that. So instead of you, you don't rip the house down to the foundation every time, you just make the changes that are needed. Exactly. I mean, you know, and also I, I kind of think that, I mean, we're basically the same age. So so you remember, I mean, you remember the world before the, the last recession, right? So one of the things I remember is that's different from this recession is in the last recession, you had people that just did not believe it was happening. Right. Which to me blew my mind. <laughs> How do you not understand this is going on? But I mean, that's because, I mean, we're, we're also talking about the 2008 recession, right? Yes, sir. So that is still in this era of the 24-hour news cycle where, you know, if you go to Fox, you know you're going to get the right slant. You go to CNN, you know you're going to get the left slant. You go to MSNBC, you're going to get a marginally more leftist slant. We're, we're still in that time frame of people were really starting to buy what was being spooed fed to them because – they didn't know any better. And we also kind of live in a time where their, the ability to access quote-unquote information, good, bad, and different, is insane. I mean, literally in our pocket, we carry the world with us for most of us that have a smartphone. So we're, we're still kind of – Right. It, we're in the beginning of that, of, of that information age, but – between that and people having to work more to get less, um, it was – you still had people that were ignorant, willingfully ignorant to what was happening right in front of their faces because their political party said, oh, no, that's not what's going on. Exactly. And, and to me, like, I mean, I have a whole, like, so I was working on this small paper, and I was the entertainment reporter. And basically, like, I was coming out of this uh, – I would always come out of this theater at some crazy hour in the morning. And by the time I was out of the theater, there was kind of like a changing in the guard, if you will, you know. Like, the people coming out with me were people who lived there, basically. Right. Like, right around it. And I just noticed, like, some of these people look pretty young, right? Like really young. Where, where are they going? And I asked one young lady, and, and she basically said, she essentially said like she was a, um, the bank was paying her to live in this condo. The bank? <laughs> well, like That's the bank had bought, the con the bank had essentially bought the tower, right? And for some legal reason that I don't quite understand, they had to have a person living there. So they so the paid somebody. 
Exactly. They paid her to, so they could fulfill this, this thing. I think that's one of the right. biggest problems that I had with the whole 2008 recession was this, this mentality that businesses and banks were too big to fail. And I think that's well, a, a horrific precedent. Right. But see, this was like 2006. I just kind of chuckle when we just magically decided in 2008 that's when the recession was. Because you, I was already, you know, I was already kind of seeing it because I'd gone to these investment meetings, you know, these banks were having, and they were telling people that this was going to be the new industry. And I'm like, that, you're not making anything. Banks you're not actually and then paying people to live there. Well, what what you would do is, so the theory was the bank bought the property. And then through magical voodoo, they turned this mortgage or whatever into a financial instrument for you to invest in. And somehow in the magical world of Disney, this would spur more housing construction or whatever, you know, condo construction or whatever. And I literally remember this. I was literally the only person in the room that was like, this isn't right. (laughs) This doesn't add up. Okay, exactly. It sounds like a massive scam just out of the gate. Well, right. But re- remember how people older than us, like, remember remember those arguments you might have had with your parents about how, you know, property always goes up? Yeah. And you're, you're like, what if it doesn't? And they're like, <laughs> yes, it does. It will. <laughs> no matter what, it will. Right. Through the, through the magic of Disney, it'll, it'll just always go up. <laughs> and right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we had it. We had a housing bubble here that was right before COVID. You know, it, it sounds like what you were talking about about this incident in 2006. It, it sounded like the bank was trying to cut out the middleman of mortgage lenders by owning the property and subletting it, and somehow still turning it into an investment property. I, I, it boggles my brain. And I, and I, again, going to my, my history of being a little bit all over the place, I understand real estate to a degree because I actually had my real estate license for a short period of time. Um, wow. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, but what I remember about it was I was literally the only person in the room who was like, this, this isn't right. <laughs> this is, this doesn't add up. Right. And I'm not even in the room and just getting it secondhand knowledge from you and it just doesn't add up. <clears throat> it's like, what are you doing? But, you know, but I just remember that. And I, I mean, there's other things I, I, you know, there's other little stories, but essentially by the end of that year, I kind of realized that something was going to happen. And to be honest with you, when it did, I mean, I thought surely it was going to be worse. Like, I thought for sure it was going to be a lot worse than it ended up being. Right. You know? Because, I mean, the crazy thing was I interviewed this lady, this uh, real estate agent. I think she was a real estate agent. I'm not sure. But 
she was basically saying like um she was essentially talking about how she would these people would get this house from her and they would they would go to the camping store and they would buy camping equipment and live in their own house what exactly the whole point of camping is to protect you from the elements not from the well they would get sleeping bags not tents but like sleeping bags and stuff instead of furniture that's exactly what I said weird very weird it was it, it, but I looked at that. I looked at that story, and I was like, "Okay, this is something's about to fall down." <laughs> you know, like I, my follow-up question be is would be why? Why don't you have furniture? I mean, is it a short-term thing? Like you don't plan on being there? Or is it is it a month-to-month kind of turnover? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, another example that I've been chewing on ever since whenever. Um, so right before COVID, there are these $3,000 a month apartments. Um, my attitude is if you can pay $3,000 a month for an apartment, you can probably find, you can probably find a house. And I'm like, okay, what's happening? Like, (laughs) what is going on? That's. Yeah, that sounds – I mean, I understand that not everybody wants to buy a house, you know, depending upon what their plans are, and, and I don't knock anybody for, you know, living but their life. $3, but $3,000 – but I think we can both agree, $3,000 a month for a house is a little – that's a little insane. Well, I mean, $3,000 a month for an apartment come is up a little to, insane. Come to New York, and you're paying that much for a house or an apartment that's about the size of my kitchen. Um you get New York City. I think it really depends on where you live. I, I agree that three thousand dollars for, you know, someone down somewhere down in Georgia and Atlanta, in that area, that's a lot of money for an apartment. I mean, unless you're sitting literally in the central of the main city. But that's just it. It wasn't. It, that's just that's just it. It wasn't. It was in this um, uh, a gentrified area, if you will, like a newly gentrified situation. And I'm just sort of like, that's not responsible. Like paying $3,000 a month for an apartment that's in that, you know, outside, like saying outside of New York. Yeah, it's really throwing away money. Responsible. Yeah, it, it, that's, that doesn't sound particularly intelligent to me because if, even if you know you're going to be there for a few years, you can still buy the property and it turns into an investment as opposed to just literally throwing away money because let's face it. That's what you do when you rent. You're you're throwing away the money because at the end of the rent, you don't have anything to show for all the money that you put into it. Um, obviously, that works for some people. It worked for me for and my wife when we were first got together and moved in together. But as we grew older, we knew we wanted a family. We knew where we wanted to be, and we bought a house. So I can't – I'm not going to fault anybody. I'm not going to knock anybody for living their best life, so to speak, um, as long as it's not harming anybody else. But I, I would – kind of sit back and throw my skeptic flag on the field if, if I knew that somebody was paying $3,000 for a, an apartment in an area that's questioning why the market value is so high. And of course we're talking pre-COVID. I, I don't know what it is now. I uh, it started before before the hockey season came back, I started reading Chernov's book um, on Hamilton because I'm on this huge 
Hamilton kick at the moment. But I've put the book down. I haven't picked it back up since hockey season started, since I'm watching, like, four and five games in a day. I'm actually, like, I'm listening to, uh, I forget, uh, Gordon Wood, I think his name is. He, uh, season two of the History Warriors is going to be on the Enlightenment. And that sounds good. That I'm sounds listening, fun. I'm studying up on the Enlightenment, uh, before the, you know, while I'm still in the flu, which is... <laughs> Any specific spot on the Enlightenment? Well, I'm, I'm, I like to start with my history stuff. I like to start at the beginning. Or actually, okay. I like to start before the beginning and go to the end. So, right. like I did, so like with the flu, I actually had a little thing about the Roman Empire. And <laughs> because, you know, basically Eurasia was essentially like what you think of as Europe was essentially the groundwork for that was laid by the collapse of the Roman Empire. And so World War One was essentially a okay. There was like a cycle of violence or whatever that kicked off in Africa, and it spiraled up, and it was essentially these European powers fighting each other over colonies. And when they ran out of Europe, I mean, when they ran out of Africa to fight over, they would just fight each other in Europe. Right. And that's kind of uh, what World War One and to some extent World War Two were that. And so, but one of the fascinating things about the flu was during the flu they thought it was World War One. <laughs> like they thought it was a chemical weapon. They thought it was a chemical weapon from the Germans. Really? Um. Yeah. Um, but the flu started before, well, like years ago. Well, before. so here's, okay, so, and this is, this is so interesting to me now, but, so the thing about, okay, so they, they found some letters from this doctor in Kansas, and he, he was writing, basically he was writing Harvard, and telling Harvard about telling Harvard Med School about this thing he was finding, this disease he was finding, okay? And when you read his letters, it it really calls into question what the flu was, like what the Spanish flu actually was. Because when you read his letters, it doesn't feel like the flu. Hmm. You know? Interesting. It doesn't, it doesn't have a flu-like feel. But also, okay, so here's something that's real obvious. It would be real obvious to you until I – but essentially, like, you today are better informed about COVID-19 than the doctors dealing with the Spanish flu were at the time they were dealing with it. Right. You know, um, there's just – and I'm happy to come on your podcast and and sing my song and dance my dance, but – Lord knows these people have heard it, <laughs> heard me say this a lot, but, um, I'm sorry, say that again? But I'll definitely have you on for that. Oh, I love it. 
Um, but essentially, essentially, like the 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 history of it is now it, it gets real muddy as to what it actually was. And the scariest thing that I don't even think I would have picked up on uh, like a year ago, the scariest thing to me is that it went away. It literally disappeared. Not there was nothing treatment or anything. Just went away. Well, there there was treatment. There well, okay. There was treatment they tried, but it didn't. It it wasn't really effective. Huh. There wasn't like a silver bullet vaccine or treatment or really anything. So, you know, and it just basically burned itself out. I didn't realize that. I thought it thought they had treated it, and that's kind of why we don't see that anymore. But to know that it just kind of is fell off the map. No, I mean they. I don't want to say like they didn't like. I don't want to say like they didn't try because they, right. they certainly did. And there there were like there were vaccine attempts, but the vaccine attempts I don't think worked very effectively. Right. And the other thing that is bizarre is, so the death total numbers are just like, okay, so it goes up from 25 million way north of that, like just into the stratosphere, what the estimates were for the death totals. And that's fascinating. Like, so it's like they don't really, I mean, the medical education was such that it was terrible. So you you literally could, they could think you died of the cold. Right. And you didn't. You died of the Spanish flu. Or, you know, like, you could have died. Of, so, like, okay, one example is there was plenty of people who are counted. In one of the cases, like, in one of the totals, they count the number of people who died because of the Spanish flu, not from the Spanish flu, which that's an insane number. I mean, that's a, you know, like, so, okay, if you were the breadwinner and you die, then your kids are going to starve to death. Right, which then they're going right. to count the kids' deaths as Spanish flu deaths. Right. Or, like, there was a case of, like, a conductor who, and this is so weird, so one of the things about the Spanish flu that was strange, and one of the main reasons they don't actually think it was the flu, is like you could have, you could be fine when you go to bed, you could get up, feel a little weak, and you could have a seizure or something by sundown. That's right? disturbingly rapid. That's also not the flu. <laughs> you know? So there was a case of like a conductor who had a seizure um, and basically the whole train, like he careened into a mountain, essentially. And they so like the whole train. Everyone on the train that died is a Spanish flu death. Because, again, he died from the Spanish flu. So it was related. They drew that correlation, which, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, you can skew statistics and numbers. Very easily. <laughs> right. And you get into this whole idea of, um, uh, I mean, I get where they're, go where they're coming from, 
But at the same time, it's like, I mean, it doesn't matter except academically. But it kind of does matter because I think when you have such inflated numbers that are now being ripped apart because they rightfully should be, it employs more of the skepticism to the validity of what's currently going on. And when people bring up these inflated facts and to how they were wrongly correlating deaths to, to bolster the numbers and how those numbers weren't right, for the conspiracy theorists that are you know, completely downplaying the COVID thing, all that does is, you know, fuel their fire. I know, right? It's it's so terrifying. I mean, but the, I guess the main, like the main thing that somebody asked me today, does this reassure you or not? And then, well, it's complicated. But like That's we, life. they had the same deal, you know? Yeah. Like they thought telephones caused the Spanish flu. And people think that, yeah. <laughs> With exactly five G is causing causing the, the Which, cancer. The I mean, if you've seen the, if you've ever seen the, like the phone reviewers on YouTube talk about how you can move three feet to the left and five G doesn't even work. <laughs> you know, What's, what I find frustrating is. You know, kind of touching what I said before, you have the world of information in your pocket for the most part, for most people. And you still have people that are pushing these insanely ridiculous notions like the flat earthers. And it, right. it, it's frustrating from somebody who, who, like I said, I like to look for the objective truth in things. And, and meanwhile, you have people that and it's also really hard to tell when somebody's being a troll nowadays. It used to be really easy to detect who's being a troll. But nowadays, you don't know who's being a troll and, and who's serious anymore. And I don't put anything past humans nowadays. Michael, um been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Pleasure All talking right. to you. Thanks. All right. Bye. Have a good one.